0: NATO's top leader warns that the war in Ukraine could become a full-blown war between Russia and all of the NATO countries. And, of course, NATO is the U.S.-led military alliance. That means a full-blown war between the biggest nuclear powers in the world. At the same time, Western capitalism is planning a complete takeover of Ukraine's economy. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking again with Ben Norton. Ben is an investigative journalist based in Latin America. He's the editor of the independent news website Multipolarista, which you can find at multipolarista.com. Ben Norton, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian. It's always a pleasure being here.
0: Ben, I, I ask you to to join because you've written some very significant articles, uh, which we're going to talk about regarding how the West and Ukraine's elites, the Ukrainian bourgeoisie combined with the Western bourgeoisie in the United States and the EU plan a complete uh, neo-colonial type takeover of Ukraine's economy, and we want to talk about what that means for. Ukrainian workers and Ukrainian farmers for the masses of people in Ukraine, not to mention other parts of the world. But when I saw this quote from Jen Stoltenberg, the leader of NATO, where he says sort of offhandedly, oh yes, this can become a full-blown war between uh, Russia and NATO forces, meaning the largest nuclear uh, powers in the world. And at the same time, Uh, We saw Ukraine carry out drone strikes deep into Russian territory. In the last couple, well, in the last few hours, there are reports, at least in the media, that Russian drones have struck uh, buildings in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And at the same time, the media in the West, at least, is reporting that the U.S. Pentagon is planning to dramatically escalate the war by sending Patriot missiles to Ukraine, something that hasn't been done as of yet. So I wanted to talk to you about the economy, the economic impact of the war on Ukraine, on Europe, on the United States, on the global south, the impact on Russia's economy. There's a lot to talk about. But before we do that, let's just talk about these dramatic uh, comments about escalation leading towards sort of, I don't know, sort of passively presenting the possibility of thermonuclear war because that's what war between the major powers actually would uh, descend to. Yeah,
1: Brian, you and Eugene Perrier have done excellent analysis warning about how dangerous this could be where we see further and further escalation moving up the escalation ladder potentially toward a nuclear conflict. Let's not forget the U.S. and Russia are the two largest nuclear powers in the world. And when we talk about NATO, we mean the U.S. military the U.S. military is by far the largest force within NATO. The second largest is Turkey. I don't think Turkey would be involved in this conflict. We're talking, when we say there's a NATO-Russia war, we mean a U.S.-Russia war. And, you know, you you talked about this con, this uh, quote from Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, warning of a potential widening war. I also want to read another quote here from November 3rd from the head of U.S. Strategic Command, which is the branch of the US military that oversees nuclear weapons. So the Navy Admiral Charles A. Richard, who's the commander of Stratcom, he said, quote, this Ukraine crisis that we're in right now, this is just the warm up. The big one is coming and it isn't going to be very long before we're going to be tested in ways that we haven't been tested in a long time. That's a very strange quote. Ukraine is the warm up. The big one is coming again. This is the U.S. military officer who oversees U.S. nuclear forces. A very concerning quote. Furthermore, we see the latest reports that the U.S. continues to send more and more military technology and weapons to Ukraine. The latest example is that the U.S. is now likely going to be sending uh, the most advanced weapon system yet, which is the the most advanced U.S. surface-to-air missile system, which is called the Patriot, to Ukraine. What that means is that we're going to see more and more U.S. technology, of course, created by companies like Raytheon, in this case, that are profiting, destroying Russian military assets and potentially Russian planes. So that could be another escalation that could lead to Ukrainian forces. But with the support of the U.S. military, we know that the U.S. military and the CIA have forces on the ground in Ukraine, training forces on the front lines, overseeing intelligence. We could see U.S. military technology being overseen by U.S. military forces, and maybe with Ukrainian personnel technically managing them, but with the oversight of U.S. military personnel, shooting down Russian aircraft, I mean, that, that's as close as we can possibly get without it simply being a U.S.-Russian war. This is extremely dangerous.
0: All right, Ben Norton, let's turn now to the economy. There's a lot to cover. And when I talk about the economy, we wanna talk about Ukraine's economy, but also the economic impact on the the Russian economy, on Europe, on the Global South, on the US military industrial complex, which is, you know, this is a great boon to the military industrial complex. We have a lot to talk about. But let's start with the people of Ukraine. Ukraine has been, it's one of the biggest countries in Europe and also the poorest country in Europe uh, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And the breakup of the Soviet Union was the breakup of an integrated economy, an integrated, planned, publicly-owned economy. And you can see that Ukraine's economy, even over the last 30 years since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, has largely still been integrated with the Russian economy. Uh, Spare parts, equipment, all the technologies match. Uh, And and you can see since 2014, since the coup d'etat, Uh, The US supported coup d'etat led by Nazis that overthrew the neutral government in Ukraine, the Yanukovych government. One of the plans of the United States has been to separate forcibly, I think, and with the connivance of their Ukrainian proxies, separate Russia's economy from Ukraine's economy. Again, it was an integrated economy for many, many decades. but this has led to great impoverishment for the people of Ukraine. They're already the poorest people almost, I think, in Europe, and now a 30% contraction of the economy in 2022.
1: Yeah, I mean, the International Monetary Fund, which, you know, people watching this probably know that the IMF has a long history of trapping countries in debt. And I'll talk about that in a second because Ukraine is getting trapped in IMF debt in exactly the same kind of debt trap. That we've seen countries like argentina and mexico um, also trapped in imf debt the imf reported in 2019 this is before russia invaded that ukraine was the poorest country in europe poorer than Moldova. the world bank is now reporting that by the end of 2023 25 ukrainians are going to live in poverty by 2024 the world bank estimates that 55 percent of ukrainians will live in poverty over half Of the Ukrainian population. Before Russia invaded, according to World Bank data, Ukraine constantly had a a little under 10% unemployment chronically. That's that's a consistent pattern over years. And among the youth, that's significantly worse. Around 20% of Ukrainian youth were unemployed before Russia invaded. Obviously, the situation is going to get much worse. In terms of the income distribution in Ukraine, which is, of course, a very important Uh, a very important factor in this, right? This is as of 2017. So again, before Russia invaded, 4% of wealth was held by the lowest 10% earning part of the population. So the poorest 10% of Ukrainians had 4% of wealth, whereas uh, the highest 10% had 25% of wealth. So we're talking about a country that is deeply unequal. Of course, Ukraine is not alone. The United States is also deeply unequal. But something that people don't understand, Brian, is that, I mean, you talked about the latest World Bank estimate that the GDP in Ukraine will shrink by about 30%. For people who don't know, the GDP includes all goods and services produced by the Ukrainian economy in one year. It's the size of the entire Ukrainian economy. Now, the fact that it's going to shrink is already concerning because... Ukrainian GDP has consistently been lower than many other parts of Europe. And, you know, GDP is not a great measurement always because it's the size of the entire economy. So it doesn't include, for instance, things like inequality. So technically, your GDP can grow. But if a small handful of billionaire oligarchs are making more and more money, you technically can have economic growth, even if working people are getting poor and poorer. But just to get an idea, we can look at GDP per capita, right? So GDP per capita is the size of the entire economy divided by the number of people. And it's a way of measuring basically how much wealth is produced on average by each person in Ukraine in the economy. And and we can do this in different ways, right? You can do do nominal measurement, which means you look at simply things in in strictly in U.S. dollars, which is not a very good measurement, right? Because if you're a Ukrainian, you're not usually going to buy things with a dollar, right? You're going to buy things in your local currency. And that means that you might have a different level of purchasing power. So a better measurement of this is purchasing power parity. So what that means is that if you look at the average purchasing power of an average Ukrainian, what we're talking about is around uh, GDP per capita, $13,000. Now, if you compare that to the US, it's $65,000. If you compare it to Brazil, It's $15,000. That is to say, the average Ukrainian worker has a smaller per capita uh, value than a worker in Brazil or Mexico. And if you look at median income, which is it's even worse, and this is also median income that is measured for purchasing power parity. The average worker in Ukraine has a median income annually of $4,400 and that's net income, that's after taxes. Whereas in Brazil, the average median income of a worker after taxes is 4,500. So the reason I'm going through this data, I don't wanna, I don't wanna you know, drown people in these numbers, but I'm trying to point, get to a point here that Ukraine, even though it's technically part of Europe, Eastern Europe, in many ways economically, it's kind of part of the periphery. It has an economy at a similar level as countries in the global south. That wasn't always the case during you know in the 1980s and 1990 at the end of the soviet union ukraine had a very significant economy that was built on manufacturing and now if you look at ukraine's gdp today 60% of ukraine's gdp is in the service sector 28% is in industry and 12% is in agriculture so in the soviet system the ukrainian economy was built on uh, on industry on creating machine parts, on significant industrial production. But now we see in the neoliberal era, Ukrainians have gotten poorer and poorer, and their purchasing power has, has decreased more and more. And now we see that the majority of Ukrainians work in the service sector, not in industrial production. And we see that their wages, on average, the median income, is lower than the wages for an average worker in Brazil or Mexico. And it's only gonna get worse. All of this data that I've been talking about is from 2021 data, mostly from the World Bank. So Ukraine is is in a very desperate situation. And the situation for Ukrainian workers is gonna get worse and worse. We can talk, Brian, about what the economic policies being proposed by the Ukrainian government and the West are. And it shows that this country that is at a similar economic level of development as countries in the global South, like Brazil and Mexico, is is in many ways, it's going to de-industrialize even more with more neoliberal policies that are only going to make its workers poorer.
0: Ben, those are pretty shocking statistics. And I just want to remind people watching or listening to this show that the last thing that people in Ukraine need is war. And if you actually care about Ukrainian people, instead of thinking of the Ukrainian people as cutouts, meaning that they're fighting a noble cause against Russia and we just have to keep sending them more and more weapons. If instead of thinking about Ukrainians that way and think about Ukrainians as people who need peace and need economic development, the last thing you should be demanding is that the United States and NATO send more and more weapons to Ukraine because that won't actually end the war. It will escalate the war, but it won't end it. And the way to end the war is actually for NATO and the United States to go back to the negotiating table with Russia because it is a proxy war and allow Russia's legitimate national security concerns that Ukraine not be used as a staging ground for advanced enemy missiles targeting Russia right on its border. Like, that is the path to peace. If you care about Ukrainians, We have to get to peace rather than more and more weapons. The idea that you're helping Ukraine by sending more weapons, that's a mirage. That's delusional or just a self-serving fantasy dished out by by imperialist governments. Uh, I want to also make the point, and you touched on it, that when Ukraine was part of an integrated planned economy, the Soviet Union, the Soviet economy was the second biggest economy in the world. So the oil and natural resources that came from, say, Azerbaijan, from the Caspian, from from the Caucasus, from Russia, they were also accessible for Ukraine, just as Ukraine's great industrial uh, production sector and its agricultural sector were goods and services available to the rest of the Soviet people. And the Soviet people were... A people, even though there was different nationalities and ethnicities, and they fought together against Nazism and fascism. And they shared in the benefits of socialism, even in a poorer and still developing country, including free healthcare and free education, guaranteed employment, the right to go on a month's vacation, starting with the time of your employment, early uh, retirement ages, these sort of social insurance programs that Ukrainians enjoyed. And Ukrainians, you know, I don't know in terms of how the IMF measures that, but if you have free health care, affordable housing, free transportation, the right to take an affordable vacation and the right to retire early, uh, even if you don't have huge amounts of disposable income, those are huge uh, achievements for working class people. A lot of that, most of that is gone uh, for the people of Ukraine. And what's coming next as Ukraine has been moved into the U.S.-EU sphere of influence is more of the same, meaning more of the economic catastrophe for the Ukrainian working class. Uh, You have an article in Multipolarista, which is a really important article, and I encourage everyone to go to your website, multipolarista.com, to read this article and other articles. The, The title is Zelensky is literally selling Ukraine to U.S. corporations on Wall Street. Subtitle, Ukraine's Western-backed leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, opened the New York Stock Exchange, telling Wall Street his country is, quote, open, close quote, for foreign corporations to exploit its $400 billion in state sell-offs. Uh, Again, this is not going to be nirvana for the Ukrainian working class, but it will be for capitalist investors in the West.
1: Absolutely right. And in September, Zelensky symbolically, he rang the opening bell, if you will, via Zoom from the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street. And The image of it is deeply symbolic because it shows the economic policies that Zelensky is trying to pursue, supposedly to improve and revive the Ukrainian economy, which it's the same old neoliberal playbook of the Chicago boys. It's very similar to the kind of neoliberal shock therapy imposed on countries like Indonesia after the US backed fascist coup led by Sue Harto. Or the uh, similar fascist coup in Chile in 1973, led by Augusto Pinochet. I'm going to read here a press release from the Ukrainian government that boasted of the announcement of the Advantage Ukraine project. This is again this is the language of the Ukrainian government. They said the 400 plus billion dollars in investment options featured on Advantage Ukraine span public-private partnerships, privatization, and private ventures. A USAID-supported project team of investment bankers and researchers appointed by Ukraine's Ministry of Economy will work with businesses interested in investing. And in the same press release, the Ukrainian government quoted the president of the New York Stock Exchange Group, who said that we are very excited to have unfettered access to capital And uh, he said that uh, we welcome President Zelensky virtually to the New York Stock Exchange bell podium, a symbol of the freedom and opportunity our U.S. capital markets have enabled around the globe. So this, for me, just really says everything about the attitude that the Ukrainian government is taking. It's in this moment of extreme crisis, of a war that is literally destroying its economy, that is plunging millions of its inhabitants into poverty, that is shrinking the economy by 30%, potentially more, and its response is neoliberal shock therapy. And you know this is something that we hear again and again and throughout history, where neoliberal Western economists tell countries that the way to, to get rich is to open up their economy to foreign direct investment, to sell off state institutions, to... Cut labor protections. Zelensky has imposed some of the worst anti-labor legislation in all of Europe, basically making it illegal to form a union, uh, suspending collective bargaining rights, cutting wages. So the, the working power of or the the purchasing power of Ukrainian workers has decreased. Their economic uh, power has decreased in terms of their ability to organize as workers, and at the, in the meantime the government is saying we're open for business and inviting foreign corporations to come in and raid the country. And even if you read mainstream bourgeois Keynesian economists, they will say that foreign direct investment is not some magic you know, formula to develop an economy. Every single economy that developed, including the US economy, the British economy, even more recently, the South Korean economy, the Japanese economy, all of those economies were based on some elements of protectionism to protect infant industries. Because if you just welcome in foreign capital, you can your local industry cannot compete with these foreign corporations that have tons of access to tons of capital. What we're actually seeing is the cannibalization of Ukraine's industry, the deindustrialization of Ukraine. And what we're seeing is Western neoliberal economies are turning Ukraine into, into two sources of cheap agricultural exports. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with a country being agricultural and exporting agriculture. And in fact, 41% of Ukraine's exports already are agriculture. Ukraine is the world's largest producer and exporter of, of sunflower and sunflower oil and seeds. It's also one of the world's largest producers and exporters of wheat and corn. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. However... If you're also destroying the industrial base and simply turning the country into an an export agrico- an agricultural export hub, like many parts of the global south, we're basically seeing a kind of colonization of Ukraine by Western capital. So, so Ukraine is gonna be a source of cheap agricultural exports, which you it's hard to develop your economy if all you're doing is exporting agriculture. And then uh, the other point is cheap Ukrainian labor to exploit. And we see that the service sector, the industrial sector in Ukraine is being destroyed, and we see two sectors, agriculture and the service sector. So we're gonna have basically offshoring of uh, you know, these companies in the West, they're gonna offshore and exploit Ukrainian labor, but all of that capital is gonna be sucked back into Western capitals, right? We're not talking about actual capital investment to develop local industry in Ukraine, because if you look at all the policy proposals, privatization, public private partnerships they're not talking about developing ukrainian industry they're not saying you know you look at south korea you know south korea is often port- portrayed as like this great uh, model for capitalist development but the south korean economy was always deeply protectionist the south korean state always had policies to make sure that large ukraine uh, large south korean companies would maintain competitiveness in the international market with you know the technology sector, phones, TVs, cars. Ukraine is not doing any of those policies. So this is an example of what economists talk about, the idea of kicking out the ladder, right? The way that actual advanced capitalist countries made their economies and their, their, their companies competitive is through protectionist measures. And that's how they developed it. And then they tell everyone around the world, get rid of all your protectionist measures and implement these neoliberal policies on an export basis, kicking out the ladder below them. And that's exactly what they're doing to Ukraine. It's the same economic program that the IMF has imposed around the Global South, and now they're doing it to their so-called allies in Ukraine.
0: Let's listen to um, a video. For those listening to the show, they can hear it as an audio clip. For those watching this show on Breakthrough News, you can see the video itself. It's produced by the Ukrainian government and it's a, really, it's a feel-good video. Uh, and so you have to look, you have to read the, or hear the words and understand that they're feel-good euphemisms. So like when you talk about reforming labor markets, that means basically eviscerating or extinguishing workers' rights, uh, including protections not to be laid off, not to be fired. But this video is narrated, I believe, or hosted. It's certainly released by Ukraine's vice prime minister. And so Ukraine is very proud of this video. I guess, Ben, it goes hand in hand with Zelensky's ringing of the bell on the New York Stock Exchange on September 6th and announcing Ukraine is open for business. Well, what does business mean for the vultures on Wall Street or in London or in Paris? Of course it means to super exploit the labor, the resources, the land of whatever the invested country is. This is not, they call it the principles of the free market. The principles of the free market are the right of the capitalists to go in and super exploit uh, the places where they wanna do investment. And just like they wanna get rid of federal regulations in the United States to, to limit emissions or to protect the environment, They want to get rid of any limitation or obstruction on the rights of capital, the so-called rights of capital. So listen to this video, everybody. Watch this video. Think. The words are euphemistic words. They're feel-good words. But let's talk about, after we watch it, what the real meaning is. Let's listen. Let's
2: look eight years ahead. 2030 the history of the new ukraine is studied all over the globe why because ukraine became the most digital and convenient country in the world scripts have replaced bureaucrats 500,000 former public servants are successfully integrated in the new economy no more red tape but paperless no more banknotes but cashless yes we became the first country to abandon paper money Ukraine now has the best tech system for the IT industry and the most affordable e-residency. Thanks to Ukrainian engineers and programmers, the R&D centers of the world's top technology companies operate successfully, and Ukraine ranks first in the world by the number of startups per capita. Ukrainian courts are guided by artificial intelligence, and all notarial acts take place online. Ukrainian customs is fully automatic and the fastest in the world. Customs clearance and car registration can now be done in three clicks from your smartphone. Because of war and internal migration, we have built the most flexible and modern digital education. Brave military and civilians get quality treatment with modern remote monitoring and e-health systems. Ukraine also has the most effective cyber defense in the world. After the horrors of 2022, Ukraine focused on security systems. Now every production facility has its air defense system, and the sleep of Ukrainians is protected by an ultra-modern iron dome. The Ukrainian government is digital, more like an IT company in terms of the efficiency of implementing decisions. And one can register a land plot, start construction, open a business or get a license, and register a car or real estate from a smartphone automatically in one click. Ukraine is the freest and digital, This is all because international partners and the world's leading technology companies supported the Digital for Freedom initiative and united to help Ukraine recover through digitalization. Building a new Ukraine together, free and the fastest, brave and digital.
0: So, uh, Ben, the uh, government will be more like an IT company. I was thinking when, when they were advertising, this is this euphoric fantasy about what's coming but maybe it's not a fantasy. Maybe it's just the dystopian reality of what is to come if the U.S. succeeds. But I was thinking, like, the government in Ukraine, like an IT company or some. Maybe Elon Musk could buy Ukraine, uh, you know, and make it all cashless and paperless and, you know, get rid of those workers who want rights. And, you know, I mean, this is, again, it's euphemistic language, but it's a complete evisceration of the social and economic rights and benefits that Ukrainian workers used to have.
1: Yeah, and when you listen to the buzzwords that they use in that video, I mean, you have a lot of neoliberal buzzwords, especially no more bureaucracy, no more red tape. When they say that, they they really mean no regulation. They say you can register a land plot on the internet. So no regulation of land. You can register a business on the internet, no regulation of businesses, yet alone workers' rights. No, they, they say that you can register a car. Well, if that car is broken and has you know health, it it, uh, it has issues that affect public health. Well, we don't care. I mean, what what they're talking about is the complete destruction of the state and allowing capital free reign to control everything. I mean, this is a neoliberal dystopia. This is capitalism with no controls, no regulations whatsoever. I mean, this is the wild, wild west. And in the meantime, you know, they say that. They're going to get rid of all these government officials and replace them with, you know, uh, e- you know, economic tech experts. And they say 80% of the economy is going to be in the tech sector. Well, uh, I just talked about how actually, no, uh, uh, the, the economy is going to consist of agricultural exports and service. That is to say that Ukrainians are going to be cheap labor for foreign capital, for foreign corporations. And that money is not going to be invested in the Ukrainian economy. It's going to be invested in, it's going to be money that, is invested in corporations that belong to foreign powers, basically, that are located in technically, legally, in in foreign countries. So they have no actual technological infrastructure to develop any of this. What we're seeing is a kind of neo-feudal Ukrainian economy where Ukraine becomes a resource extraction hub. And I want to stress this point again. What we're seeing is a kind of colonization of Ukraine economically that is so similar to the way that the Western colonial powers colonized parts of the Global South. The difference is, they're telling Ukraine that they're they're best friends while they're doing it, right? They're telling you, we we love Ukraine, we're supporting you, while they're destroying Ukraine's economy. I mean, there's another point I wanted to briefly raise here, um, Brian, which is about debt, because I mentioned the IMF. The International Monetary Fund has a long history of trapping countries in odious debt, and then forcing governments to implement structural adjustment programs which is just neoliberal austerity, cutting the minimum wage, cutting social programs, cutting healthcare and education spending, privatizing state assets. That's exactly what they're doing to Ukraine. And not, not just now. That's what they've been doing since the coup in 2014. In fact, the coup in 2014 was partially a product of an IMF bailout. Because what happened? In 2013, the democratically elected president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, was negotiating a potential agreement to become part of the European Union's economic bloc, He wasn't gonna integrate Ukraine politically into the European Union, but have basically a free trade agreement with the European Union. And in order to be part of this European Union economic block, the IMF required that Ukraine had to implement harsh structural adjustment policies, austerity policies and privatization. And Yanukovych, who certainly was not a friend of the left, but he was a kind of nationalist. He said, this is this is unacceptable for me. I would be ha- I would have to sell my country off to all of this foreign capital. And he refused to accept those conditions. And then that led to these large protests and Euromaidan and eventually the coup backed let by me, the U.S. Let government. Me, let me just the- jump
0: in, Ben. Let me just jump in right there because I, this is a historical moment that is misunderstood uh, by people today in the current renditions. When the EU offered... Not full membership of Ukraine into into the EU, but the what's called an association agreement. It was, as you're stating, basically an austerity plan. It was like Ukraine would be like what happened to the people in Greece. You have to you know use your country's resources as collateral in this debt trap and basically you're you're being strangled by Western banks. So Yanukovych, who was not hostile to the EU. He was not hostile to the West. But he said no to this particular association agreement. And it was at that moment that the leaders of the EU and the United States said to Yanukovych, look, if you want to come into the EU ever, you have to agree to this this association agreement, this austerity plan, right this second. This is an ultimatum. And when they issued the ultimatum, that was designed deliberately to create pro-EU protests in Maidan, in the center of Kiev. Because then the people in Ukraine, especially those in the western part who were more inclined towards Europe, were angry at Yanukovych for blowing it because the EU was saying it's now or never And Yanukovych was like, yeah, we want to come in to have some arrangement with you, but not this one, not the austerity plan. So then these mass protests start because now the people in Europe in the western part of Ukraine are angry. And within that pro-Maidan protest, pro-EU protest, the fascist element, the Azov battalion, the right sector, they constitute maybe 10% of that. Not Not most people but maybe the decisive 10%. And after a few months, it's they, the Nazis, the fascists, the right sector, who carry out the armed dispersal of the government, the Yanukovych government, and seize the power. And then we have a new government that the U.S. helped pick, handpick. So my point is the Maidan protests themselves were part of this uh, plan by the EU to create social and political tension within Ukraine by creating an association agreement as an ultimatum, as opposed to saying, okay, you don't like this plan, let's go back to the drawing board and see if we can give you a better plan. EU deliberately created a crisis that led to mass protests that eventually led to the coup, which of course was the big game changer. Go ahead.
1: Absolutely, and we can see that there is also a direct economic reason for this. I mean, not only are we talking about geopolitics here, these things always intersect with the economic motivations. And Yanukovych, not not out of an ideological conviction for the left, right? Simply out of his own national bourgeois interests, he went against the IMF. And now we've seen that since the coup in 2014, Ukraine has been basically become controlled by the IMF, just like countries in the Global South, like Argentina is a classic example that for decades has been, since the 1980s, has been trapped on and off in this unpayable odious debt owed to the IMF. And in the meantime, the Ukrainian economy suffered significantly because of the coup, because clearly what happens after a coup, you have this political instability for months with the protests starting in late 2013, then you have a coup, you have violence, so you have a lot of capital flight. Even you know, investors who support these neoliberal policies, they, they withdraw their capital from the country because they're afraid of instability. So Ukrainian workers have had their purchasing power decline ever since 2014, not just since the Russian invasion. In 2014, before the coup, at the beginning of the year, one U.S. dollar was convertible to about eight hryvnia, uh, which is the Ukrainian currency, their local currency. By 2016, so two years after the coup, the currency had depreciated against the US dollar so much that it went from eight to each US dollar to 26 to each US dollar. That's to say that Ukrainians had one third of the purchasing power they had just two years before. And then now it's 37 to each US dollar. So what we see is a devaluation of the Ukrainian currency, which means that Ukrainian workers have less and less purchasing power. In the United States, we've seen the highest rates of inflation in two decades, 9% inflation. And I'm not downplaying how tough that has been for a lot of workers who live paycheck to paycheck. Now imagine if your your paycheck that you get every month decreased in value by one third. That's what Ukrainian, actually now one fourth. That's what Ukrainian workers have been dealing with. And at the same time, domestic gas prices in Ukraine have increased 650% since the coup in 2014. Why? Because before Yanukovych had an agreement in which Ukraine was receiving very cheap energy, oil and gas from Russia. And now not only is Ukraine not receiving that cheap gas and oil, it's also losing billions of dollars per year in transit fees. And that might not sound like a lot in the U.S. economy, which is a multi-trillion dollar economy. But even if you accept the most charitable estimates of Ukraine's economy, We're talking about maybe $190 billion is the size of the entire economy, the whole GDP. And Ukraine was getting billions of dollars in transit fees from Russia for Russia, like Gazprom, the oil, the gas giant, to send its gas through a natural gas pipeline through Ukraine. Well, now, because of the war and because of the political conflict between Ukraine and Russia pushed by NATO, now Ukraine is going to lose billions of dollars in the transit fees. Furthermore, while the currency has been Depreciating, which makes it harder for the country to pay off its dollar-denominated debt, right? Because Ukraine can't print dollars, but it has more and more debt with the IMF. Meanwhile, the latest numbers of debt to the I- to, of ex- total external debt, which is largely to the IMF and Western banks and the World Bank. U- Ukraine now, according to World Bank data, has 130 billion dollars in external debt. So that means that we're talking about over half of the GDP and external debt. How is Ukraine gonna pay those U- that US dollar-denominated debt? How is Ukraine gonna get the dollars it needs to pay off that debt? And, and how, especially when you have average working people with their currency depreciating more and more and their purchasing power decreased, we're talking about a, a country that is trapped in debt, more and more debt, and it's less and less able to pay for it. This year, during the war, in 2022, Ukraine has paid the World Bank 500 million dollars plus 60 in extra fees and 60 million dollars in extra fees and in interest. And Ukraine this year during the war, Ukraine has paid the IMF 1.3 billion dollars in in debt plus 150 million dollars in extra surcharges. In the next year, 2023, Ukraine is expected to repay the IMF $3 billion, including uh, that's that's for its debt and for surcharges, which are extra fees. So the West is telling Ukraine, we're here to save you. We're here to help you. But at the same time, it is forcing Ukraine to continue to pay billions of dollars to the IMF and the World Bank. This is what help looks like to the
0: neoliberal countries in the West. Very well put. And... Again, if the if the capitalists and bankers and militarists in the West, who are making so much money from the war, uh really want to help the Ukrainians, let's give them a test, Ben. Let's cancel all of the Ukraine's debt to European and US banks because they love Ukraine so much. It's such a noble cause. The war must go on. So cancel the debt. Cancel the debt. And and of course. Uh, You know, when you think about who else is paying for the war, I mean, people in Europe are paying higher energy prices. You have the people in the United States, you know, more than 50 percent of the discretionary federal budget every year goes to the military uh, to the military war machine and either either directly through Pentagon spending or the spending for war in the intelligence agencies or in the Department of Energy or in debt servicing of debt from previous wars, like the wars that go on nonstop in the United States. So you have the US military budget, the DOD budget, about 800 billion. Congress, by the way, gave the DOD, the Pentagon, more money than even Biden asked for, showing that Congress is like an imperialist institution as well. Uh, The real budget for war spending is probably a trillion dollars in the U.S. So who pays that money? That's U.S. taxpayers. That's U.S. working class folks, the middle class, the workers, the poor. Uh, People pay that money. And when you talk about the tens of billions of dollars in aid, so-called aid to Ukraine, well, a lot of that money never leaves the United States. It's just checks being made to Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, for the next set of weapons and they call that aid to Ukraine well that money goes to the investors the capitalist investors in the military industrial complex so Ukrainian workers are suffering people in Europe are suffering people in the global south are are being ravaged by high food prices cuz wheat and food exports uh coming from Ukraine and Russia are are either you know diminished or or cost more uh, and people in the United States are are footing the bill for the military-industrial complex. I mean, this is a rich man's war. And, you know, every time the ruling class in an imperialist capitalist country goes to war, they always say they're reacting to somebody else's misdeeds. It's, in this case, it's Russia's aggression against Ukraine is the trigger. And, yes, Russia did invade Ukraine. And you don't have to support Russia's invasion of Ukraine, to recognize that the U.S. wasn't um, unhappy about Russia's invasion of Ukraine because, in a way, they've created a situation on all of these fronts that's completely uh, beneficial to capitalism, or at least to the capitalist ruling class. So I I just want people to, you know, when you look at the news and say, America's doing this because of Russia's aggression, think about the big economic picture. Because Ben, as you're pointing out in your articles in Multipolarista, the, the establishment, the political, military, and economic establishment in the United States, they're not simply reacting to Russia's aggression. They have big plans for Europe and for Ukraine. And this is, by the way, if you look at the war, the World War II, I'll just finish on this nineteen forty three to nineteen forty five I, I recommend everybody to read the book, Gabriel Kolko's book, The Politics of War. between nineteen forty three and forty five the main consideration by the United States and Britain, while it was destroying German and Japanese cities, destroying them, literally firebombing them out of existence, was how they were going to economically rebuild these places to the benefit of capitalist elites in those countries and especially to the capitalist elites in the United States. So it isn't just reacting to the enemy, reacting to the aggressor. There's a lot of planning going on about what a post-war era, uh, arena looks like economically, socially, and politically.
1: That's absolutely right. War is big business for the capitalist class. And you know, there are so many direct parallels, in fact, to past wars. You mentioned World War II. And, you know, we you can talk about the Marshall Fund. You know, when I learned about the Marshall Fund in public school in the U.S., it was portrayed as some benevolent plan by the U.S. government to help protect and, you know, save its allies. In reality, it was a way of maintaining U.S. economic hegemony, maintaining the hegemony of the U.S. dollar, which is still an, an issue that we're dealing with today around the world, and strengthening U.S. corporations. I mean, it wasn't just like free money. It was a way of ensuring that the European market, which was decimated by World War II, would remain dependent on U.S. corporations, right? And similarly, during World War II, there was the Lend-Lease Program, which it was an important uh, program by the U.S. government to help the Soviet Union and also Britain to, to provide uh, ammunition and weapons and military technology in order to fight fascism, The Soviet Union, of course, did the majority of that. 27 million Soviets died in World War II compared to 400,000 Brits and 400,000 US soldiers. And I mean, the reality is that over 80% of Nazi casualties happen on the Eastern Front against the Red Army. But anyway, the point is that the Lend-Lease program was not free money. It was not free weapons. Russia didn't pay off the Lend-Lease debt until 2016. Britain also. I mean, we're talking about these countries were in debt for decades after being an ally of the U.S. in a fight against fascism. The U.S. said, all right, now pay up. And they continued paying off that debt for decades. Now we see the U.S. Congress has introduced legislation they call the Lend-Lease Act for Ukraine. So we talk about the more than $60 billion that the Biden administration has pledged in military support for Ukraine. A lot of that is not free, in scare quotes, for Ukraine. First of all, it's a, just a direct subsidy and huge contracts for the military-industrial complex. And so it's just giving all, all this public money that's just printed basically for, you know, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and, the, you know, the Beltway Bandits. But also, Ukraine has to pay for some of that, and that's just going to go in toward more debt. So the U.S. is going to extract more and more wealth from Ukraine for decades, potentially, in order to pay off this debt. By the way, Brian, there was a new report that was just released And Forbes did an article about this. And it found that in in this past year, in 2022, the world's 100 largest weapons corporations spent nearly $600 billion and 50% of weapons sales were by U.S. corporations. That is to say, out of the entire global arms industry, just the U.S., which has 4% of the global population, represents 50%. Of, US, of, of global weapons sales, and 32% of the global weapons industry is represented by five big companies. And can you guess what country all those five big, all those five country, um, companies are from? Of course, the United States. So 33%, one third of the global weapons industry is represented by Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics. So they're the ones profiting from this war, while Ukrainians are not only losing their lives, but they're also losing losing their livelihoods as their economy is being decimated.
0: And if you look at the NATO budget, you know the, we always talk about NATO as an entity, but there are 30 countries in NATO. The U.S. started NATO in 1949. It started it with a ceremony in Washington at, at the Pentagon, in the Washington area at the Pentagon. The US military budget is larger than the net all twenty-nine other members of NATO combined. If you put all twenty-nine countries that are not the United States and put their military budgets together, they constitute one-third one-third of what the US spends. NATO's military budget is one third They're, sorry. Man, I'm sorry for screwing up. That's one-third of the military budget of the United States. So when we talk about NATO, as you pointed out earlier, it really is a projection of U.S. power. It's a projection of U.S. military power. It's a projection of U.S. economic power. Uh, That's what's going on. And this concentration of capital which, you know, Lenin in his book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, written in 1916, trying to understand and explain World War I, and also some of the missteps by the socialist movement that went along with their own ruling classes in the war effort. He tried trying to give an analysis of what, how imperialism emerged as a world system. And, you know, things have changed in the last 120, 106 years since Lenin wrote that pamphlet. You know, decolonization happened, and colonization was a big part of his pamphlet. But there are core elements, and, and some of them are the concentration of production, the monopolization of capitalism. These are the dominant features. In fact, Lenin said, if you want to find the briefest possible definition for Im- modern imperialism, you would say it is monopoly capitalism as a global system. And so when you think about this vast expenditure on military, on, the, on death and destruction, and five primary corporations dominate that. The same process of monopolization and concentration of wealth that's happening in the military, it's happening in media, it's happening in banking. These fundamental features of modern uh, capitalism are, are very very much in place. In that sense, uh, Lenin's thesis still holds. And it is, of course, a a driver of military conflict. Again, one of the purposes of our show, Ben, is to bring class consciousness or political consciousness to people so that the spoon-fed war propaganda and pro-market or pro-capitalist propaganda that people get in their everyday lives, that we have some way to challenge it because their, their propaganda is marketing for capitalism And what we're saying is actually the reality of how the capitalist system works. In other words, it's true. Um, Anyway, I think that's why your articles have been so important. I want to, again, direct people to your website, multipolarista.com or .org. No, you're a .com. .com. Multipolarista.com. There's another article that I want to recommend in addition to the one that we mentioned earlier, it's something that you wrote um uh, back in or that you published back in july it's called west prepares to plunder post-war ukraine with neoliberal shock therapy privatization deregulation slashing worker protections you wrote that and you have a co-author back in july you can see as this event is unfolding in real time that's exactly exactly what's happening as we move towards the end, Ben, though, I want to I want to talk about another element of the the economic impact of the war because some of them are somewhat surprising. I would say, uh, for instance, when Russia made the fateful decision to actually move its military forces into Ukraine, and that started February twenty fourth, twenty twenty two, I mean, we believe that. Russia was hoping for a quick ending to the war, that the Zelensky government would crumble, that pro-Russian or pro-neutral political parties, of which there were many in Ukraine, would take the power, and that would sort of end the sort of NATO takeover or the Western takeover of the country. That obviously did not happen. So if, if that was the Russian calculation, it was a miscalculation. The war has dragged on and on. A lot of people have died. It's a terrible tragedy. The Ukrainian and Russian people who fought together as one for socialism and against fascism are now shooting each other. That's a terrible tragedy. For us as socialists, uh, we could remember the Soviet Union and in spite of whatever its uh, defects, and of course every society including new societies in a tortured international environment are going to have many defects. Uh, There were many positive things about the Soviet Union but one of them was that Russians and Ukrainians weren't killing each other. So in the sense of a historical overview this too is a terrible tragedy as a consequence of the breakup of the Soviet Union and the restoration of capitalism. But with that said The United States always, in the last 30 years, targeted Russia, refused to allow Russia to come into NATO, instead expanded NATO right up to Russia's borders. Obviously, the U.S. feared that if they treated Russia as an equal, different countries in Europe, like Germany in particular, would navigate in the direction of uh, Russia. That would be a, a detriment to U.S. hegemony in Europe. Uh, there were a lot of reasons why the. US wanted to still target Russia. And so here we are, 30 years later, Russia makes the fateful decision to invade. Predictably, the West evicted or tried to evict Russia from the world economy. The sanctions are so complete, so severe. But one of the interesting things, Ben, is that Russia has not its economy has not collapsed. And even though it's suffering a lot of uh, hardships, undoubtedly because of sanctions, and they may likely grow, when you look at its trading partners and its level of trade with Brazil, Spain, China, India, Korea, Japan, and many other countries, the trade has actually increased in 2022. And of course, big parts of of the world when the U.S. was ramming through resolutions condemning Russia as the only culprit in the war, many, many countries, big part of the population of the world, voted to abstain. They didn't support the Russian invasion, but they abstained in the vote to condemn Russia. And many uh, other countries, even those who did vote to condemn, they didn't decrease trade. They didn't go along with the sanctions regime. They're actually increasing trade. So, you know, we have entered this new multipolar world. Perhaps maybe your, the creation of your website was prescient in the sense that the Russian invasion, in fact, does create a new era, we believe, of multipolar power. And we're not trying to make that, we're not trying to idealize that, but recognize it as a, as a reality. Let's explain why some of these countries, uh, especially in the global south, Or in Asia are not going along and are in fact increasing trade with Russia's economy. And From your perspective and your assessment, your analysis, uh, what's then the impact on Russia's economy? I don't think this is what the U.S. anticipated back in February when all of these sanctions were imposed on Russia.
1: Yeah, well there are a lot of things happening at the same time. We're seeing a massive global shift in so many ways and I think what the NATO proxy war in Ukraine kind of obscures is in general a more significant development, which is simply the rise of the global south. You know, uh, Kwame Nkrumah famously said, the Ghanaian Ghanaian revolutionary socialist leader who helped overthrow colonialism in Ghana, he famously wrote uh, the book Neocolonialism and discussed how political independence of colonialism was not enough. You also needed uh, economic independence in the global south. And we've seen attempts for many decades to develop new institutions to have true economic independence. I talk about some of these financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank that have acted as instruments of neocolonial power. Of course, the U.S. government has veto power over both of those institutions, which were created in the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 toward the end of World War II that also established the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. So it's part of this economic infrastructure of neocolonialism. So the Move toward a multipolar world, of course, is a complicated process, and Russia plays a role in it. But, of course, I would say more significant than Russia is China, but also India, you know, South Africa, the BRIC system. Um, Bra- Brazil is a huge part of this, and now Lula da Silva is coming back to power in Brazil. And Lula himself has written articles calling for a multipolar world. He was one of the people who gave birth to the BRIC system. It was his idea. The point is that what we're seeing is, Countries in the global South that had been subjugated by colonialism for hundreds of years are finally being able to redevelop their economies. Many through not necessarily socialist models, but state-directed models uh, of you know protectionist policies. Um, China is a classic example of this. I mean, China still has a, a socialist model and a communist party governing it. But you know, Brazil is an example of a country where the Workers Party is not necessarily a socialist party, but it's based on an economic program that used to be called Import Substitution Industrialization, ISI, which was one of the kind of mainstream development economics uh, programs that was used across the global south, especially by countries that were part of you know, the non-aligned movement. You know, Brazil actually helped give birth, and also Argentina, to this idea of import substitution industrialization. And they're returning to that economic model now, which is all based on protecting local industries, having certain forms of you know, tariffs and, and protection to, to basically prevent foreign capital from the imperial core from just t- totally devastating your local industry. So what, what we're seeing is a rise in general of the BRICS. And as part of that process, the creation of economic and financial alternatives challenging the IMF and the World Bank. And Russia plays a, a, a role in this. Now, the Russian economy is certainly no model that socialists would like to emulate. There are a lot of problems with the Russian economy. But we should also understand that the Russian economy is not a carbon copy of the Western neoliberal economies. And the Russian economy of today is not the same as economy as it was under Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s. What's not that well known is that, you know, Vladimir Putin, for all the criticisms of him, and there are many left-wing criticisms that are valid, he actually, what's not known is that he actually has the equivalent in Russia of a PhD in economics and his dissertation was basically on, uh, on the importance of economic protectionism and basically kind of what used to be called mercantilism. So it's not a socialist model, but, but if you look at the, the increasingly the economic model that, that Putin has implemented in the past 10 years, especially since the sanctions imposed on Russia in 2014, in response to the annexation of crimea after a democratic referendum in which the majority of crimeans wanted to join the russian federation russia began putin personally began imposing a lot of discipline on the oligarchs and state control over certain strategic elements of the economy so it's not socialism because the state control is not being done on behalf of the working class just as saudi arabia which has massive state control over the economy it's not a socialist economy right but it's not the same as the Western financialized neoliberal economies in which the entire industry is run by capital, right? In Russia, a significant part of the banking sector is state-owned. The lar- many of the largest companies in Russia are state-owned, including Gazprom, which is the largest company in all of Russia. It's the, it's the gas giant. It's owned by the Russian state. Can you imagine ExxonMobil being nationalized and run by the U.S. state? or Bank of America or J.P. Morgan Chase being nationalized and run by the, the U.S. state, like in the case of Russia, Spare Bank, one of the biggest banks, is a state-owned bank. So again, I'm not saying that Russia is secretly socialist. What I'm saying is that we're seeing a return toward more protectionist policies, Keynesian policies, and mercantilist policies. And many of these countries like Brazil, uh, uh, Russia, and of course, China has its own socialist model. And the economist Michael Hudson, in fact, just wrote an entire book about this, which is brilliant, called The Destiny of Civilization, in which he argues that the new Cold War, it's not like the first Cold War, which was strictly a class war between socialism led by the the Soviet camp and capitalism led by the US camp. But uh, he, he argues that the new Cold War does have an element of class war and that it's a war of the Western neoliberal financialized capitalist model which is increasingly not based on production. This is exactly what they're doing to Ukraine, destroying economic uh, industrial production and turning it into a financialized service economy for export. So that economic model versus China's socialist model, but also the kind of mercantilist model of countries represented by the BRIC system. Now they're not a socialist, I mean, excluding China, it's not a socialist model, but I think we need to understand we, have, we need to have a better geopolitical economic understanding, you know, not just political economy, but geopolitical economy, to understand what's happening as is, is part of this new economic development. So I think that partially explains why Russia has been able to survive these Western sanctions, because immediately after the 2014 sanctions that were imposed on Russia, the Russian government changed many of its policies. It imposed significant state regulation of certain industries, also agriculture. And what also happened is the Russian central bank began amassing insane amounts of foreign exchange reserves. That money probably could have been better spent on social programs, but the Russian government made a decision that they wanted to have hundreds of billions of dollars in foreign currencies and gold in its foreign exchange reserves preparing because they knew that there was going to be a moment like the moment they're in now, where there was going to be a decoupling of the Russian economy from the Western economies, and they wanted those foreign exchange reserves to stabilize their economy and their currency. That's why the Russian ruble is actually stronger now than it was before the Russian invasion, despite all the Western sanctions, because the Russian Central Bank could stabilize its currency with its massive stash of foreign exchange reserves. So what I'm getting at here is that Russia started preparing in 2014 for decoupling its economy from the West. The Russian ruling class largely Putin, which is a very centralized state, made the decision that Russia's economic future lies in integration with Asia, not integration with Europe. That, was, that, that had been the plan in the 1990s when Boris Yeltsin came to power as this you know, alcoholic Western puppet, right? He was gonna integrate Russia into the, the Eurozone and the US, but with Russia as a subordinate partner. Russia had to subordinate itself and the thing about Putin is, again, he's he's an anti-communist. He's not a friend of the left in many ways, but he's a nationalist and he recognizes that Russia has different economic interests and he refused to subordinate Russia's economic and national interests to Western capital and instead pursued a different plan, which is inter- economic integration with Asia. And that's what we're seeing. So it's no it's no surprise that Russia is doing more and more trade with China and India and even Japan. And and other parts of Asia because Russia, the Russian ruling class made the strategic decision that its future does not lie in transatlantic economic integration, it lies in Asian integration. And that's why they're building this entire new economic and and financial infrastructure with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which includes over 40 percent of the global population as its members, including China, Russia, Iran, just joined, uh, Pakistan, India, Um, Kazakhstan, other parts of Central Asia. Also, I mentioned the BRIC system. So what we're seeing is the creation of a whole new economic and, and financial architecture infrastructure. And basically what we're going to see is the kind of US dominated transatlantic economic infrastructure with the IMF and the World Bank, and also the SWIFT system. And then a whole new Asian economic infrastructure. And by the way, Latin America is also trying to develop its own system under the leadership of Lula da Silva in Brazil, and the, the Ecuadorian economist Andres Arauz, who's probably going to be the next president, he has already created a plan for a new economic and, and uh, financial infrastructure inside Latin America. So, you know, Vijay Prashad, a friend, friend of the, your show, great great analyst, he's been making the argument that what we're seeing is a return back toward regional blocks. You have Latin America, you have the transatlantic US-European block, which is gonna be increasingly dominated by US capital as Europe subordinates its economy to the US economy. You have the growing Asian block. And you also have, by the way, ASEAN, the countries of Southeast Asia, which also are a growing economic block. So I think that's what the world is heading toward. That's what this multipolar world looks like. And there are certain negative aspects of it, but there are a lot of positive aspects that open a lot of space for socialist movements especially in countries like uh, uh, regions, like in Latin America, where the left
0: is on the rise. All right. We're going to leave it right there. We've been speaking with Ben Norton. Ben's website is multipolarista.com. Ben Norton, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. You consistently have
1: one of the best shows. So it's always a pleasure being here. Great. Thanks so much.